Afghanistan is the, well, it's not the gift that keeps on giving. It's the nightmare that keeps on recurring. Um, and the situation there continues to metastasize and uh, morph into new and more troubling developments. So I wanted to take the time to do an extra episode this week again on Afghanistan, except this time, instead of looking too far backwards into the history of Afghanistan, I wanted to look at the events going on there, bring you up to speed on what's happening in Afghanistan, why it matters. Again, take a thwack at some of the low-hanging fruit and hopefully not bring, you know, bring a little bit more light than heat to the argument uh, or to the subject matter, I should say. I'm not sure how successful I was in that. I'm not going to lie. I have a lot um, of emotions and feelings about Afghanistan, and it's it was hard for me to separate, but I, I tried to bring more light than heat. We'll see how successful I was. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this extra episode of the Weekly Havoc. Normally, I'm here with a bunch of other folks. We have a roundtable discussion. I talk with staff, writers, friends from the Havoc Journal. We try to make a little order out of chaos. Today, I'm doing it by myself again. And <clears throat> the reason for it is because events in Afghanistan have been fast and furious. It's hard to keep up with all of them, but... I feel like this is a story that deserves people people's attention. And uh, so it's incumbent upon me to kind of keep talking about stuff that I'm seeing over there uh, and, and following the news and what have you that's coming out of Afghanistan right now. And, uh, you know, it's one of those where it's kind of spur of the moment. So I don't have a partner in crime for this one. So I will do a bit of pontificating and commentary and data points and I'll try to wrap it up as quick as possible so you guys don't have to listen to me soapbox for too long. But um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm I'm still a little fatigued and uh, kind of coming out of a 10-day haze here. Um, just been very busy. So bear with me if my voice is a little scratchy. I don't think I'll brain fart too much, hopefully. Hopefully there won't be a ton of malaprops and uh, double entendres and... Uh, and this goes relatively smoothly. Let's see. So what you may have noticed over the last several days is nobody cares about Afghanistan anymore, right? That story is essentially backburnered, not even backburnered. It's not even on the stove. It's may not even be in the kitchen. Um, and there's two reasons for that that I feel safe enough uh, and comfortable enough that this is generally, I think, why Afghanistan has moved off the front pages. One is a, a phenomenon that's been happening in, in the news media for a long time, which is just that there's not a lot of internationally focused news media anymore. Um, this mostly comes down to economics. Uh, I got, I, I, I'm, I, I'm probably going to date myself by trying to figure out exactly when this downturn in international coverage started to happen. But I, I suppose probably 20 years ago, 
somebody that knows more about news media history can probably correct me on that. But I, I, th- I think it's safe to say about 20, 25 years ago, um, <clears throat> news organizations really weren't as profitable as they needed to be. And a lot of them were starting to fold. And one of the easiest places to cut your expenses is foreign bureaus. So as a result, uh, all those expense accounts from hotels in Beirut or Hong Kong or Singapore um, have disappeared and had to be consolidated. And everybody had to do some belt tightening. And obviously, with that kind of economics behind the news media, print and, and, and televised news media especially, um, there, you know, that created an incentive structure for young journalists that basically, you know, there's no money in international journalism. That's not a way to uh, – it's an easy path to fame and fortune to take that route. So instead, what you start to see is a self-perpetuating uh, cycle, a feedback loop of young journalists uh, coming out of college or grad school and going into uh, domestic politics. They got very savvy on domestic issues inside the beltway politics, the typical left-right hero narratives, and um, and that's how you end up with a lot of these TV journalists, especially uh, news journalists, less so, but still the phenomenon's there. That they're very focused domestically, and that's really their wheelhouse. That's their comfort zone. So this shift from Afghanistan has been very comfortable, I think, for the news media uh, writ large. And I'm going to paint with a very broad brush, which I don't normally like to do, but for ease of nomenclature, that's what I'm going to call them uh, right now. And so so this has been very comfortable. You know, the stories that I've seen, I I don't really watch news media um, on TV. I'll see headlines uh, that I read and rarely do the stories pique my interest. But the stuff I've seen is, you know, Joe Rogan had COVID or uh, uh, the Texas abortion law, things like that. So, and that's fine. You know, I mean, those are whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly the abortion thing, uh, you know, is a very important issue. Uh, the Joe Rogan getting COVID thing is not so much of an important issue, but celebrity gossip is celebrity gossip and that drives ratings and got it. It's low hanging fruit and it's an easy story. And everyone in the media seems happy to do that. I, I don't want to make the, the super uh, obvious point that the left, that the media is general, the news media is generally left leaning. And so obviously there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance and a little bit of, um, of uh, disturbance, uh, disturbance in the force for the news media to be covering the Biden administration's fumbling of the Afghanistan exit. Uh, they, they did not like that. And one of the moments I'm thinking of is that uh, viral clip that happened when Matt, Matt Zeller of No One Left Behind, who was, it had been an ardent Biden supporter, really took Brian Williams and an MSNBC panel to task when they kind of soberly intoned that Biden was being uh, very presidential in his in the way he was conducted himself in the initial press conference um, announcing the evacuation, and Matt Zeller really tore into that, um, and it was just it was uncomfortable. Uh, I think that that moment summed up a lot of the news media's feelings that they had invested a hero narrative in Biden, um, and now it was all coming down. To be fair, again, I'm not partisan on this. I mean, as I've 
said repeatedly to those of you guys that have listened to the previous Afghanistan-related episodes, I mean, Trump did start all this. Um, Trump was wrong for starting it. Biden was wrong for not reversing it. Two things can be true at once. Two people can be assholes at once. And they both were, um, in my estimation. And I can back that up. But let's leave that for the time being. Point being, a lot of hero narratives and villain narratives have been invested in by the news media for a while. So there is a bit of comfort in the news media shifting focus back to things where they can trash Nancy Pelosi on Fox News and Jim Jordan on MSNBC and CNN and all the other networks. Um, So that's kind of their comfort zone. And that's where a lot of them are. To be fair, uh, the right wing media has still been covering Afghanistan a lot. But, you know, I think it doesn't take, uh, you know, armchair psychiatrist to realize that a lot of that is the nearest weapon at hand to bash Biden and the left. And that's, uh, you know, Fine, I'm not going to question people's motives. They happen to be right to do so. uh, So that's more important than what their motives are. But uh, I don't have any illusion. I mean, Fox wasn't covering the Afghanistan withdrawal and the drawdown and the peace process and uh, lauding it when Trump was doing it. So there's hypocrisy and lunacy on both sides of this. But the fact of the matter is, Biden did do this. He does own it. He did screw it up. And uh, the media would rather we move on from that at this point. So let's talk about exactly how the administration bungled this, because I think that's important. I'm seeing a lot of ex post facto revisionist history coming out now about how the administration handled this. So one of the biggest talking points is the, the hard numbers that the Biden administration and the State Department has put out about how many people they airlifted out of HKIA in Kabul. And, you know, over 100,000 and the largest airlift in U.S. history. And, oh, my God, we have flights leaving every 45 minutes. And this is a massive success that we were able to pull this off. No, it wasn't. And let me explain why. It's not that they got a lot of people out. Getting a lot of people out on paper sounds good. But here's how they got them out. They opened the floodgates for whoever was standing around at HKIA initially. So what you ended up with was not people that necessarily had worked for the U.S., uh, been friends to the U.S., were SIV applicants or people in high threat, uh, you know, with high risk factors and being targeted by the Taliban. They were whoever got to the airport first. And to pump their numbers up, the Biden administration shoveled them onto planes and took off with them. You know, very little vetting. uh, By very little, I mean virtually none. That's all being done now, after the fact, in Qatar or Fort Bliss or wherever the uh, the these refugees ended up. It doesn't make the refugees that got on the plane bad guys, um, but what it does mean is this was just a massive numbers push, and instead the American citizens, the uh, and uh, I should probably break down all the categories of refugees, but you have. Multiple levels. You have American citizens, you have SIVs or special immigrant visas, generally people like linguists and uh, people that have been of great value to the United States. Uh, They were sponsored as as a special immigrant uh, and they have been approved as special immigrants. Many of them have not been approved because the backlog has been huge and long for years. So most people are SIV pending and are not actually approved. You have your P1s who are uh, people who are uh, because of their service to our government or to uh, the Afghan government are now uh, targeted. And you have P2s who are targeted, but for their work to NGOs. And then you have humanitarian parolees, 
um, who are refugees with no official status, but are being, uh, you know, represented and in, in, under international laws, humanitarian parolees, um, and requiring asylum in different places. So just for kind of, uh, there's more to it than that, but those are kind of your big buckets that we can kind of look at. Um, as you heard from those descriptions, though, most of them are, I mean, American citizens are American citizens. The rest of them generally provided value to the United States and or to the Afghan government and had leadership roles and were trying to get things done and now are being hunted. You know, I mean, the old saying, no good deed should go unpunished. They're being punished for good deeds they were trying to do and for trying to be on the right side of things. They are now being hunted. Those are the people you want to help. The problem is, according to Biden's own State Department, most of them did not make it out. Most. And those that did make it out didn't make it out because the Biden administration, you know, uh, was was super big hearted uh, or, or, or incredibly organized about this. They made it out because NGOs, nonprofits, even for profit businesses went on the ground in Kabul and shepherded those SIVs, P1s, P2s onto the plane. That is the minority, not the majority of people that got onto those planes. But that's how it was done. It was done by people on the ground shepherding them through. That is not something that the Biden administration should feel good about. That is not amazing contingency planning on their part. And what really galls me is that an administration would take credit for work that was done by extra governmental organizations and and not done by them because the administration was just so welcoming of their help, but done by them often in spite of the Biden administration. A lot of these groups wound up on the ground and had to beg and borrow to try to get attention from the government and to be able to get through the Marines and onto the planes. So as much as I support the hashtag digital Dunkirk movement, and we all should, let's be clear, this isn't really a digital Dunkirk. The actual Dunkirk event in World War II, when British troops were trapped in northern France on the coast with some French resistance fighters, um, and the Nazis were closing in around them, you know, Winston Churchill had to think long and hard, how do I rescue all these troops? The British army is going to get wiped out. And then he activated the civilian response and civilians like, you know, uh, sailboats and uh, shipping vessels and, uh, you know, rafts. I mean, whatever they could get, they sent to Dunkirk and all these civilians helped people uh, help the British soldiers get out of Dunkirk. That was a government effort done by Winston Churchill because he had no other resources. So he had to rely on the civilian population. This is not Dunkirk. The U.S. government has all the resources in the world to have effectively managed this and executed this. They just didn't. And instead, all these civilians, most of them veterans, had to come in out of their own sense of honor, their own sense of of, of uh, moral obligation and execute this often in spite of the government and had, had to beg and plead and harangue and strong arm and, and write letters and do social media to convince Department of State or the Biden administration to let them get their people on the damn plane. 
So that was the initial push. And now the Biden administration is out. Um, you know, and, and the official U.S. presence is out of Afghanistan. Um, I think it's important for people to note, and I mentioned this before, but I just want to dwell on this for a little bit. Um, why? <clears throat> why did all this happen? Now, I know everyone wants the right villain to blame for this. Um, and a, a lot, we really want to boil this down to domestic politics, but let's not because it just doesn't conform to domestic political lanes. Um, why did Trump start this withdrawal? Why did he open up Parwan prison and release three times release over 5,000 prisoners from Parwan prison? Why did he engage in the peace talks with the Taliban in Doha? Why did he uh, issue a reduction in violence in February 2020? Um, I think Trump has always been an anti-interventionalist uh, to, the, to the extent he even thinks about foreign policy, which I really don't think he, he thought much. Um, and I say that I, I'm not going to go into all my um, my feelings and, and, and thoughts why, but I think the proof is in the pudding. He had an awful lot of knowledgeable exceptional people that worked with him that gave up trying to convince him to do the right thing when it came to foreign policy because he he just was, you know, um, stubborn and ignorant, which is a bad combination. But it was enough to discourage H.R. McMaster, enough to discourage Jim Mattis. Um, you know, pretty much everybody of worth eventually burned out working for him because it was just talking to a wall. So whether there was hubris, whether there was a bit of an isolationist streak, whether there was the natural uh, political allure of being able to run on saying that you had were winding down the war in Afghanistan. Um, I think all those contributed to Trump's actions there. And he deserves to be roundly lambasted um, for that. But so does Joe Biden. Biden's rationale, though, is a little bit different. And in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, Ghost Wars, Steve Cole uh, dives into a little bit of Biden's history in Afghanistan. And it's interesting. Um, Biden, more than other figures on the page, and obviously the book was written in, I think, 2004. So, you know, this Steve Cole was not, you know, targeting Joe Biden or, or, or trying to elevate his status or his profile uh, based off this. But it's very clear that Biden just did not like the Afghans. And you know, again, I'm not going to play armchair psychiatrist uh, as to you know how he felt about them as human beings or individuals, but as a culture, he clearly did not like the Afghans, and a lot of that was because he did not like the corruption he was seeing. Um, and that part I understand. That part makes sense to me. I get it. Uh, he did not let. I mean, remember, remember, Biden wasn't dealing with rank and file Afghans with your normal Afghan civilians. He was dealing with Afghan leadership, and I don't think a lot of people would, uh, you know, people that know what they're talking about and have spent time in Afghanistan, a lot of people, you know, would understand that you're going to be very frustrated with the Afghan leaders, Hamid Karzai and and even Ashraf Ghani. Um, you know, there was a lot of corruption and that filtered all the way down from the national government to the provincial governments and the local governments. And uh, obviously that made it a, a very difficult environment uh, for us in some ways 
but also um, financially for the United States because it was tough to keep track of where the money's going and how much fidelity we have on where the money's being spent and is it being spent the way we needed to. And let's remember Biden was the loyal opposition at that time. This was George Bush's war and Biden was furious uh, that you know he did not like Bush and uh, and the Afghans represented uh, the quote unquote good war that he and Barack Obama ran on. They said Iraq was bad, but Afghanistan was good. Um, but Biden was fed up very quickly, uh, even as a senator before he was vice president, with the Afghan leadership and because of the corruption. The the ironic part of it is Biden also, and, and just factually speaking, Joe Biden has been wrong on every single foreign policy decision he's ever made since he's been in office, and that goes back to 1976. He has categorical, sorry, categorically been wrong on every single decision, and this was one of them. And and the reason for it, it seems to be he didn't fully appreciate his own role in encouraging Afghan corruption. And let me explain. As part of the Obama administration, Biden holds responsibility for messaging our surge in Afghanistan as a very temporary measure and thereby discouraging the Afghans that we were going to stick around for any length of time. Now, to Biden, with his Scranton common sense, to him that means, hey, I'm giving, I'm putting you on the clock, so you guys better sharp up quickly, sharpen up quickly, because we're out of here in ten minutes. We're going to be out of here. We're going to start withdrawing troops in three years after we surge. So you guys better better get with the program. Um, th- that's not how this works. That's a complete disincentive. Instead, what an Afghan hears, which to me is the same as what a resident of a housing project would hear if the police came in to clean it up from drug dealers, is, oh, okay, you guys are going to be gone very soon, so I'm not going to go out of my way to help you a lot. And instead, what Afghans were going to do is go, if I have a chance to make money while it's safe and scam money or steal money and move to Dubai, I'm going to do that. Because you guys are going to be gone, as you said, in three years. So if I can help myself and my family and get out of here in one piece, I'm going to do that. And that's what a lot of Afghans did. There were Afghans, uh, probably people that served in Afghanistan, can tell you stories about the Afghan restaurants that were on bases there, um, uh, Afghan, even on the FOBs. Um, not all of them, obviously, uh, but on some of the larger FOBs or more established FOBs. And if you ever talk to the people that ran those restaurants, the Afghans that ran those restaurants, they were very well off. They made a lot of money there feeding American soldiers. And this wasn't, you know, it wasn't the cafeteria, it wasn't the DFAC uh, for civilians that, that don't understand. I, that was a whole separate thing. This was like an actual restaurant that would be on your post. And troops would go there all the time because it was a nice change of pace. And uh, those Afghans were, um, you know, were there for years. They were uh, uh, almost a part of the bureaucracy of base. They made a lot of money. And when things started to fall apart, uh, you know, they packed up and moved to Dubai. I don't blame them. Um, and that and they're they're, you know, emblematic of a large segment of Afghan of the Afghan population, especially the political leaders. It's hard to put all your chips on the United States when the United States for the last three presidents has gone out of its way to say, hey, we're not going to stick around here very long. And then you're surprised that they're corrupt. And you're surprised that they're just looking at a 50-meter target and just trying to, you know, and not thinking about the long-term health and welfare of their country. 
Well, what incentive have you given them to think about that? So that was how Biden played Afghanistan. That was his thoughts on Afghanistan. And um, I I think that's his blind spot about Afghanistan. And I think, uh, again, I I don't want to play armchair psychiatrist uh, totally. I think there's certain dots that we can connect relatively easily. Um, my, My sense, though, is that Biden never thought this would get so out of hand. You know, you have to remember he was there when Obama left Iraq. And that was, again, an abhorrently wrong move. Nobody noticed, and it the withdrawal was not done chaotically or haphazardly. There weren't massive refugee things, and we left the Kurds hanging, and we got out of Iraq. Um, but it wasn't; it, it didn't capture the eyeballs and the attention of the American public the way this did, and that caught Biden on his back foot. So, the Biden administration since then has been engaging in a lot of revisionist history. That it had that these contingencies were all planned for, and okay, we're disappointed that the Afghans did last longer fighting back against the Taliban. But hey, we we were planned for everything. Um, they're not, and you don't need to take my word for it. You can look at the way that the humanitarian crisis continues to play out. So currently, as we speak, uh, the Department of State has still failed to coordinate with the surrounding countries to be able to fly planes in and out. Um, you know, you can't just, uh, you know, ferry refugees from Afghanistan willy-nilly. For one thing, the Taliban control the airports now. There are credible reports that Iran actually is helping to um, put anti-air weapons on certain airfields to on the off chance that America would want to retake the airfield. Um but then if, even if the planes got in, they can't leave and they have nowhere to go. And even if they did leave, w- what country is going to accept them? Um, well, that's all diplomatic stuff. That's all Department of State's wheelhouse. That's what they need to be doing. But they hadn't done it yet because this was none of this was planned. And as a result, you, this is not – I want to be clear about this. Afghanistan is not, um, let's say, Rwanda. And it's not uh, – you know, the um, I'm trying to think of some other easy examples. It's not even the Cambodian boat people. You know, this is um, this is something that we were very much. I mean, I should say about Cambodia. We obviously affected that with Vietnam, but it's not Rwanda. You know, it's not just a straight humanitarian uh, mission here. These are people that we owe something to your SIVs worked on behalf of the American government and their lives will never be the same. They are going to be targeted the rest of their lives unless they're safe in, in the West. P1s, same thing. P2s, same thing, except they didn't sacrifice on behalf of the government or the military. They sacrificed on behalf of an NGO doing humanitarian work, and they will pay a price for that should they remain in Afghanistan. So these these are people that literally helped America accomplish its missions. And, ex- and 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 raise the standard of living, lower lower the child mortality rates, um, you know, bring back an Afghan economy. Not to mention keep a lot of shitheads out of Afghanistan, and uh, you know keep us free from terrorism for twenty years. And this is how they are repaid: is they are left stranded there, 
completely at the whim of the Taliban as to whether or not they're going to be allowed to leave. Now, there is, as much as the media now is trying to turn the page on this, there is a vocal veteran community that is outraged about this. And one of the effects of that is that the State Department and Department of Defense do want to try to get people out. Um, They were caught on the back foot by the administration, but they both do want to actually make sure that we get these people out. They understand the moral obligation we hold, I think. You know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be a, you know, a psychic, but but I, I do believe that's what they think. And based off what I've heard, I think that's that's how they read this. The problem, though, is as much as they want to get them out, because there was no coordination, everything has to be t- done to the Taliban's satisfaction. We have to make the Taliban, we have to do trade-offs with the Taliban in order to free these people. And guess who the Taliban has the biggest grudge against? The military, intelligence, government officials that we want to prioritize getting out of there. How are they going to get out if we fly them out? If the Taliban said, okay, you can fly. Well, the Taliban would like to check their biometrics or check them as they walk through the doors into the hangars. So they have to pass Taliban screening. And if the Taliban were to decide to simply take them aside and disappear them, who would be any the wiser? How do we know somebody just didn't happen to make their flight? Well, this isn't a hype, a hype you know, uh, jeez, uh, why is my brain? Okay, this was my first official brain fart. Um, this isn't a hypothetical. Man, long day. This isn't a hypothetical. This is actually what happens. The Taliban are actively kicking in doors, going door to door, and trying to find these people. So the fact that we can do them the favor of congregating all these high-value targets around the airport and funnel them through Taliban checkpoints and Taliban searches to get onto a plane is uh, <laughs> its a hell of a leap of faith on our part that this is going to go off without a hitch. So what what is the Biden administration trying to do? Well, it's trying to offer more carrots. Now, what are the carrots that the Biden administration has to dangle in front of the Taliban? There is about $4 billion, I believe, tied up in the Afghan banking system. The Biden administration has talked about eking that out to the Taliban if they play ball and let the people go that we want to see let go. Um, There's that. The Taliban uh, would love to continue to have a great economy. They have no idea how to do it. Um, The Biden administration may help them do that. They want airplanes going in and out. They want commercial flights going in and out. Because, and I can't tell you how excited I am for the people left in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan to be able to fly out of Afghanistan to the destination of their choice. I'm sure that will not have any negative repercussions whatsoever. Um, but then there's the other, uh, and these are all uh, obviously I'm I'm skeptical and annoyed and and more than annoyed, um, angry and even furious about the leverage the Taliban has over us. But I think it's really important then to note the most immediate carrot that the Biden administration has. And that is the resistance in Afghanistan. The resistance that is congregated yet again, as it did before the United States came back into Afghanistan on 9, after 
the resistance based in Panjshir, in the province of Panjshir. And before 9-11, Ahmed Shah Massoud was the Panjshiri leader, the lion of the Panjshir, who led the resistance against the Soviets. I mean, he was one of the Mujahideen that fought back against the Soviets, and he eventually became the nemesis of the Taliban. And I know people that fought with Massoud. Uh, the, those Tajik loyalists from the Panjshir are um, brutally tough. And they are back. They are the last, uh, last bastion of the old Afghanistan government that's left. And they're being led by Massoud's son, again named Ahmad Massoud, and Amarullah Saleh, who was the vice president of Afghanistan and has stayed in the country to fight. He was also the former intelligence chief. Um, he has been one of the most noble Afghan leaders, I think, of the past 20 years. He has consistently been an articulate messenger uh, for pro-American messages, and he has been a staunch uh, believer in the ideals of the West and in bringing that to Afghanistan. And he is now fighting for his life in the Panjshir. The question is... What value does Biden get by hanging them out to dry? As of right now, they are on social media. Their internet has been cut off repeatedly. It's hard for them to get their message out, but they are struggling for resources because of two things. One, obviously the Taliban now has new munitions, new weapons. They have night vision goggles. They have drones. They have a whole bunch of things that we left in Afghanistan that now the Taliban possesses. And that is bad. But beyond that, it's important to note, I'm going to sidebar here, quick little trivia question. Who was the first foreign official let back into the new Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? The chief of the Pakistani ISI. And the ISI is fighting with the Taliban in Panjshir not only the ISI, the actual Pakistani army is in the Panjshir with the Taliban. Not only the Pakistani army, but the Pakistani Air Force. So you have Pakistani drones, air power, infantrymen, and of course their ISI spies. Are we starting to see maybe why the Afghan military crumbled so quickly that Pakistan overtly was helping the is helping the Taliban. Now, again, Steve Coles, I've as you guys have listened to my episode on this before, um, remember, you know, it's been an open secret that Pakistan that the ISI has supported and nurtured the Taliban for years, and they've had this kind of recalcitrant dog owner relationship between the two of them. Um, but the fact that this is so overt in our wake leads me to believe that Pakistan would never, ever expose its, its overt relationship with the Taliban unless they knew there were going to be no repercussions. There is no way the ISI chief lets himself get photographed at the Serena Hotel in downtown Kabul unless he knows that the United States does not give a shit. And now it starts to make sense why the Afghan army was getting smoked 
right off the bat. And obviously, they were at a disadvantage because we had pulled out. We They no longer had the air power. They no longer had the ISR, the drones, the intelligence support that we could provide. But on top of it, they were facing the Pakistani army in addition to the Taliban. It is also worth noting that Pakistan has grown excessively close to China and is now part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. So whose drones do you think are flying around there? This is not conspiracy theorizing. This is overtly known uh, you know, uh, uh, news at this point. Nobody's trying to hide this, which is the most alarming thing. And these Panchiris, most of whom now are, you know, they are actually some from Panchir, and many of them are, you know, former Afghans military, and they fled to the Panchir to rearm, regroup, and stage the last holdout against the Taliban. But they're not prepared to also fight a nation state, and not even just one nation state, two nation states. Pakistan and China. And of course, Iran you know, has its toeholds there as well. So you could even argue three nation states as well as the Taliban. And the Taliban, as I talked about before, is incestuously related to Al-Qaeda and Haqqani. All three came from different elements originally 20 years ago. At this point, I can tell you if somebody is, tal- is a Taliban red unit commando leader, Two months before they were Al Qaeda, and a month before that they were Haqqani. It's all nomenclature that just changes. the the it, it doesn't matter. It's interchangeable terms. This is who's fighting this these last resistance fighters in the Panjshir, and where is the United States? Joe Biden has talked repeatedly that we help our allies. Are these not our allies? Where is the support? Where are the airdrops? Where's our chance to actually sling load in supplies for them? Now, hopefully they get support. Hopefully countries like like, uh, India will come in and help. Because it is in India's geopolitical interest to push back against Pakistan. And we are trying to align with India, um, or have been for several years. There's no, I don't think we're, we're pushing them in any one direction on this particular um, issue, but you know the United States has tried to go, grow closer to India uh, to counter some of the nefarious aspects of, of Pakistan. But hopefully, India does do something. But it's probably too little, too late at this point. And all this gives me a sickening feeling that we are selling out the Panjshiris in order to win concessions from the Taliban. Now that is. I I suppose you would have to label that speculation, but it's goddamn informed speculation. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of assessing the situation and, and making some pretty very, very small leaps in, 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 in assumption. Okay. Let me back up to the other, another national security aspect of this. The refugees. So I I heard a lot of the jackassery on the right, Laura Ingram and, and people like that that were mouthing off that we shouldn't let Afghans in and, you know, uh, who are they and what do we owe them and all that. And that's just outright jackassery and stupidity. My biggest fear, though, and it's not without cause, 
is that in the Biden administration's rush to just let on massive amounts of unvetted refugees who were not SIVs, P1s, P2s, humanitarian parolees, there are credible rumors that Al-Qaeda, ISIS, anybody could have easily inserted people onto those planes. I mean, that, does, that, does that surprise to anybody? Haqqani himself was controlling the security in Kabul. The Taliban was manning the checkpoints. ISIS got a bomber through. Do we really think they, are, they could, couldn't possibly have people infiltrate those planes? And if that's the case, that will be the worst propaganda, the worst kind of propaganda, because now the right will become just as stupid as the Biden defenders. And we'll start to say, to start to smear Afghan refugees when the Afghan refugees that we're trying to get out and have gotten out are the ones that were the most noble and the most devout in their support of the United States. And it would be a goddamn shame for them to be smeared. So I hope that's not the case. And the way to stop that is hopefully we are vetting the hell out of the people that are in these holding areas now in Fort Bliss, in in Qatar, and um, anywhere else that we're holding them. So I just want to throw that out there as a possibility. Okay, we've covered a lot. I did do notes for this to keep myself sort of on track only because I don't trust my brain 100% right now to stay focused and and not, uh, you know, uh, crap out here and there occasionally. Um, I will throw out there just as a data point for people to think about. um, The protests are mounting in Afghanistan right now. It started with women. You have to remember, these are women that for 20 years have seen increasing rights in Afghanistan, increasing freedoms, increasing liberalization in education, in opportunity. And the jarring reality of the Taliban showing up so quickly and locking down society and throwing everything back, spinning the dial back 20 years has been, um, you know, it's, it's set off a lot of Afghan women and they've been protesting and they have started to incur casualties because of it. So to those, and the Biden administration has prided itself. It is openly said human rights are a national security issue. We are all about human rights. Well, the proof is in the pudding. You say that you're there for allies. You're not backing up the Pancheries. You say you're there for human rights. Where are you for these women? Those protests are spreading. Um, or I should say the protesting fever is spreading. I don't want to say that the, the because the women were protesting that spurred others, although it may have. But certainly other protests are, are gaining steam. Um, that to me means that the Taliban and its partners may start to become more and more draconian in their crackdowns on this. And I should say, one of the, in, in a perverse way, the best second-order effect that the resistance in the Panjshir has has uh, caused is the Taliban's lack of attention to the rest of the country. The Taliban has had to throw an awful lot of resources into the Panjshir because it is a brutally hard area to invade and occupy and hold. 
you know, let me, I'm sorry, let me, I, there's a couple things I wanted to mention about the fighting in the Panjshir. So there's been, just to give you kind of an idea of what exactly it means for the Taliban to be moving into the Panjshir. So first, the Taliban has been brutally hunting down Panjshiris wherever they can find them. If they can find people from the Panjshir, they will hunt them and they will find them. When they find Panjshiris, whether it's in Panjshir or outside, um, and sometimes it's even not Panjshiris, it's just people, military-aged males that they can find, they will force them to fight for the Taliban. Or if not fight for them, they will use them as human shields and they will march them in front of them. So the Panjshiris end up killing innocent Afghans who are marching in front of the Taliban. That's the kind of entity we're dealing with. Now, let me give some good news so it's not all Debbie Downer stuff. There has been a faint silver lining, which is that the Taliban is full of morons. They aren't just barbarians. They aren't just criminals. They aren't just terrorists. They aren't just reprobates. They are also incredibly moronic in many, many ways. Um, There are very few of them that are cunning and clever. Um, And we're seeing that. One of the biggest mistakes they made was they established their government and excluded the upper leadership of the Haqqani network, which is a real slap in the face because those two, as I said, have become incredibly incestuous over the years. Well, Haqqani, in response, pulled out of Kabul and pulled his troops, his Haqqani fighters, out of Panjshir, which meant the Taliban suddenly had lost a significant amount of manpower. Now, fortunately they had the Pakistani army to back them up and they could force recruits to magically appear at the point of a gun, but they had to do it because they had failed to honor their alliance with uh, the Haqqani network in a way that uh, the Haqqani guys felt like sticking around. So that's good. In the trade, that's known as red-on-red violence, you know, or red-on-red conflict. You know, two bad guys that are, you know, not fans of each other. So that's, you know, something. Uh, It's a little bit of a marginal piece of good news. Uh, Let me, so on that, leaving that aside for right now, I just want to make sure I've mentioned that because I'd kick myself if I didn't. Um, Let me pivot to some of the, uh, again, just some low-hanging fruit for a second. Uh, you know, I continue to hear stupidity about, uh, you know, well, there's no good time to withdraw. You know, there's never been a good time to withdraw. Um, right. So what? So here's how I see this saying that there's no good time to withdraw. That's like saying, you know, I've been doing laundry for 40 years for 40 years. I've been doing laundry. How much longer do I have to do laundry? right? Does this kind of make sense? You keep getting your clothes dirty, don't you? Then you probably need to keep doing laundry. There's no good time to withdraw. We've been there for 20 years. And so is the threat still there? Well, then who cares? You're going to stay there. Or I mean, maybe the better parallel is crime. You know, we've had a police force in New York City for whatever, 150 years. Uh, Isn't that enough? 150 years of a police force, of a paramilitary group of uniformed men marching through our streets, looking for people. Isn't that enough? No, because crime continues to happen. I mean, this is, 
obvious, but uh, sadly, we live in a day and age where sometimes we have to restate the obvious. Um, and that's maybe the most necessary thing we have to do. Well, that's the case here. It doesn't matter. No one cares that there's no good time to withdraw. The reason there's no good time to withdraw is because the threat is still there. The great time to withdraw is when there's no more threat. The threat's still there. Why are we discussing this? We've been there for 20 years. So who cares? If I hear one more person say that we've been there for 20 years, though, that never served in the military, I'm going to lose my mind. Because what do you care? How has this affected you? Outside of occasionally hearing a news story about it, perusing the New Yorker or the op-ed page of the New York Times, how exactly has this affected your life? I'm going to guess it probably hasn't. And for those whose lives it has affected, for those that have gone over to Afghanistan, well, most that went to Afghanistan were there under 12 months. Even fewer were there under 24 months, even fewer under 36 months. So we haven't been there for 20 years. The United States has, but we individually haven't. And I'm not saying this like nobody's, you know, like that's not still a grueling sacrifice to make. And a lot of significant emotional events occur. It can happen in a week, much less a year. But the fact of the matter is, is we're looking at this through the wrong metric. We need to be crystal clear that if there is a threat, we stay until the threat is mitigated. You don't stir up a hornet's nest only to walk away before all the hornets are dead. If you're going to attack the hornet's nest, kill all the hornets. And when that threat is gone, then you can walk away. Then you can go sip your lemonade. This should not be rocket science. This is why we have a military. This is what we do. And as I've said before, there was no precipitating incident. There was no Tet Offensive. There was no Kaysan. There was no you know, horrific event that triggered us having to draw down in Afghanistan. And I will tell you, having been there as late as this time last year, there is zero reason why we couldn't have just maintained 2,500 troops there, providing intelligence, ISR, drones, maintenance, and the Afghans could have led the fighting. There was no reason we couldn't have done that. And that would have been something. And we could have done that, held that squat for a long time. Okay. We've talked about a lot of those before, but I just wanted to hit those again. Um, I, I didn't dwell on this too much the last time I talked about this, but you know the Biden administration's talked repeatedly about over the horizon. And they've put a lot of faith in over the horizon operations. And uh, as somebody that was tracking those discussions in country, and now I'm seeing the end result of them sitting here comfortably outside of the country, um, they have always been horseshit, and they continue to be horseshit. You don't need to take my word for it. You can look at the proof in the pudding. ISIS bombers blew up, you know, they uh, detonated themselves at the Abbey Gate, killed 13 Marines. We decided to go after those planners. Good outstanding. I'm glad we did. I'm glad Biden held to his word and did that. That was absolutely the right thing to do. He ordered, I think I'm right in saying this, um, two drone strikes. One of them got an ISIS planner. The other one killed a bunch of innocent Afghans, a family, um, I believe in a vehicle, if I, I remember right. I probably should have punched this up before I 
I just started to spout off about it. But the point is, they killed a bunch of innocents. Why? Well, because it's over the horizon. You don't have people on the ground that can target for you. So how in God's name do you think you're going to, with any accuracy, be able to target and hunt moving moving threats uh, with with 100% accuracy or 90% accuracy even? In this case, it was 50% accuracy. Got one guy, got the wrong guys. This is the danger of over the horizon. And the Biden administration thinks it can continue to do over the horizon attacks and, and launch kinetic strikes and as part of counter-terror operations? <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding? I mean, not to mention, I mean, you got Haqqani, Al-Qaeda, Taliban moving all around the country right now. I mean, wouldn't this be a good time to attack? If, if I mean, is that not counter-terror? Are, are these not the, the droids we're looking for? But obviously, I'm walking over land I've already tilled. Okay, so we've talked about all those aspects. Um, the, another piece of low-hanging fruit I've been hearing, uh, you know, any withdrawal would have been chaotic. You know, that's just how withdrawals are. So you got to grade the Biden administration on a curve. The fuck you do. That's ridiculous. As I referenced before, does anybody remember the chaos of our withdrawal from Iraq? And remember, that's the withdrawal that very quickly led to the birth of ISIS. Yet, did we have Iraqis hanging to the side of our planes? Did we have, I mean, we, and we left a lot of people in the lurch. We left the Kurds in the lurch. We left a, we left a bunch of people in the lurch. It was not a, the right move. Regardless, you didn't see the chaos in the withdrawal that we saw here. For better or for worse, that withdrawal was planned. That had contingencies. This did not. That should be fairly obvious for anyone to look at and analyze. Now, let me move to something that's maybe a little bit more um, less focused on what has happened and shift more towards the future of what could happen. So there's a couple of phenomena that I'm seeing um, that may or may not lead to anything. Uh, And they have good and bad possibilities. But I just want to draw attention to it. One is our NATO partners that have been, let's say, aghast, for lack of a better word, at how we have pulled out of Afghanistan, the suddenness with which we've done it, the incompetence with which we've done it, uh, the um, uh, disturbing amount of propaganda we have now awarded to the Taliban. Um, And that has left a lot of our NATO partners rankled. And good, justifiably so. I'm with them. I'm rankled as well. But the interesting second order effect of that is a lot of our NATO partners seem to be assessing how how much muscle they need to add to their military. Because let's be clear, we didn't need anybody else to be in Afghanistan with us. We wanted our allies there with us, but we didn't need them. We are a big military. We have the ability of conducting unilateral military operations. But places like Slovakia, even Spain, can't. Well, maybe they're rethinking that. There's just kind of, I'm just picking up, you know, uh, a news story here and there that seems to hint that these governments are now saying, hey, you know, if we feel strongly about this, maybe we should start to have the ability to have unilateral operations. 
Because if we can't trust that the United States is going to be there with us if needed, we better be able to unilaterally protect or um, operate ourselves. Now, there's an upside to that. Uh, if you, We all probably remember the Trump years where Trump shamed the NATO countries for not contributing enough to the to their uh, military budgets and all that. And okay, so if this spurs NATO our NATO allies to uh, become a bit more muscular, okay, that could be a good thing. There is a downside. The more countries that have the ability to conduct unilateral military operations, uh, the more they can be independent actors and get into their own headaches and find themselves at cross purposes with other entities, other nation states that may have been allies previously. It's sort of like that that old trope that um, the Obama administration got into uh, where they wanted to go to nuclear zero and they want to reduce nuclear weapons. And what they realized is when they started to reduce nuclear weapons, all these other countries started to pick them up and gain them because they were like, oh, crap, if the United States isn't going to have enough nukes to really keep the peace and be the world superpower, then we all need nukes and actually makes the world more dangerous. The same thing here, this nominal tip of the hat to peace actually makes the world more dangerous. I mean, not just through the obvious ways that you've now emboldened and encouraged international terrorism coming out of Afghanistan, but also you've shaken the confidence of our allies to believe that we are going to act responsibly as a superpower and as the term that all Americans hate, the global policeman, which we are not and never have been, but to take that derisive term at face value – Um, We were always benign and we were always well regarded in that. And now our allies are shaken. That's going to lead to instability in my estimation. Hopefully it doesn't. But that kind of instability, uh, you don't put that toothpaste back in the tube once that's out there. Uh, And, you know, as Japan starts to become more muscular, and let's remember our Japanese history. You know, there's never been a time that Japan's had a military that it hasn't ended up dominating the Pacific Rim. So this is um, the repercussions of our appearance of weakness in Afghanistan are going to haunt us and haunt the world for a long time because there will be challenges to our dominance and to our leadership because people are losing their faith in us. Our allies are losing their faith in us. Here's the second aspect, and this is just kind of a curiosity that I, it's a, it's a phenomenon that I want to mention just because I find it interesting and I wonder how it will play out five, 10 years from now. As I talked up front about the digital Dunkirk movement and the fact that without government initiative, and in fact, because of a government, a vacuum of government oversight and power, we are seeing veterans fill the breach and solve problems that the federal government is designed to do. I mean, one of the, the federal government does a lot of things it doesn't have to do that other thing other entities could handle. But national security is truly one of the few things the federal government does that it really is the only entity in town that should be doing that and has had the ability to do that. But what we're seeing now is through nonprofits, through NGOs, 
through for-profit businesses, there is a swelling of the ranks of the civilian population with veterans who are building infrastructures to affect government operations to re- because the government won't be there because the government is being negligent and neglecting some of its responsibilities. These civilians, these veterans are filling that gap and they are learning that they have to build an infrastructure to do that. They're learning that all those skills they had in the military, the logistics, the planning, the operational support, um, the personnel, talent management, all those things are coming into play and taking on uh, a new significance with an awful lot of public support and goodwill. And let me be clear, justifiably so and nobly so, and this is, the be- this is, in my opinion, America at its best. It is motivated, experienced veterans that are doing God's work. And I don't say that in a religious connotation. I just mean I'm, I'm using that phrase colloquially. I mean, they are doing I, – I do think they are doing God's work. But let me just also say I'm being a little poetic and literary by saying that. They are doing the, the highest calling of a human being. They are saving people's lives and they are taking the role that government that our government should be taking and they are putting it on their, their own shoulders and they're volunteering for the most part. Now, there are for-profit businesses that are doing that as well. But this is a remarkable phenomenon. And I think as this infrastructure starts to be built, I don't know what happens to it. I don't know what that metastasizes into. Or if it does, it does it just deteriorate and degrade and fall apart after this particular Afghanistan episode? Or does it stay in place? And is there ability to monetize it and use it for other things? Team Rubicon has done great work doing humanitarian work all over the world, using vets to do that. Does this become a humanitarian infrastructure that can be activated at a moment's notice to help people in dark places? I don't know. And it's an interesting bookend to the global war on terror, because at the beginning of the global war on terror, to those that remember, in the early to mid aughts, the the new hotness in journalism was covering these mysterious, mustache twirlingly nebulous and possibly evil private military companies that were emerging. Blackwater, Triple Canopy, um, Custer Battles, for those that remember Custer Battles. Um, these, these companies that were mercenaries, that were soldiers of fortune, that were doing uh, military jobs alongside our troops, sometimes in place of our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. And there was a lot of journalism. I think Jeremy Scahill made his career on books and articles exposing private military companies and, and kind of fear-mongering about their possibilities. And the argument at the time was, look, there's a major anti-war movement in the United States when uh, very quickly, you know, a couple of years after the global war on terror started. And the, the obvious retort to people that bashed private military companies is, hey, you, you're anti-war. You don't want you know, your teenage son or daughter going out and fighting and dying in Iraq. Well, hey, here's a 22-year NSW veteran or, you know, a 20-year SF guy who wants to make 900 to $1,500 a day going and doing ludicrously difficult assignments in hotspots around the world. So what? What do you care? 
This saves your son or daughter from that obligation. These guys want to do it and they have the experience. So why not use them? And they'll get paid, but man, are they worth it. Well, that was the the issue. That was the fear-mongering back then. Now, we're seeing the flip side of it, where we're seeing, again, still some for-profit businesses, in some cases, even the same ones, although they might be under different names, um, but a lot of nonprofits, a lot of NGOs, a lot of uh, people that are coming together out of moral obligation, a sense of honor, and a sense that the government is not doing, is not fulfilling what an American government should be doing and building an infrastructure to accomplish the same missions that Department of State should be doing or Department of Defense or um, you know, any number of other entities. It's interesting. I don't know where that leads, and maybe it doesn't lead anywhere. I just find it to be an interesting phenomenon and worth noting that that, I think, in time, we will see as one of the knock-on effects of this withdrawal. And as I have said before, and I'll say it again, I've, I've said this for several years, but I said, if we leave Afghanistan, we will be back within three years because that place needs adult supervision and it will be to our detriment. It might take another 9-11 for us to find the rationale to go back in, but we will go back in. I, I remain as convinced of that now as, as ever. I don't see how we could not. Um, so I'll end on that note. Okay, this was kind of a bag of ideas. I hope some of these ideas were interesting, compelling, added some clarity. Um, again, a lot of opinion of mine in that, but hopefully you guys have enough data points in there to at least uh, either agree with me or you know find at least what what limbs I'm I'm you know resting my argument on that you can. Uh, try to attack. But hopefully that that adds a little bit more. Uh, I, I know I brought a little bit of heat to this, but hopefully it does add a little bit of light as well um, to the discussion, because I know, as I've said before, I don't blame Americans for not paying attention to Afghanistan. People have lives, people have jobs, people have families. I can't expect the average American to pay attention to Afghanistan. But to those of us that really care about Afghanistan and our legacy there, um, it's incumbent upon us to talk about Afghanistan and keep it in people's uh, purview. Make sure people are aware of what's going on over there and the importance of it. And I'll just finish by saying this. We need to remember that America is good and we are the good guys. And what is so heartbreaking about this episode is that this is a case where we are not living up to our ideals. We have great ideals And you don't always live up to your ideals. That's why it's an ideal. But when we are failing so distinctly and so purposely to live up to our ideal, I think that does demand um, a course correction in our public consciousness and that we need to look inside and demand that our government fulfill the obligations we expect it to as America. Okay. If I were to say any more than that, I'd, I'd feel like I'm making a political speech and running for office. And I'm God knows I'm not. So I'll leave it there. Um, but again, I hope this was somewhat enlightening and, um, and wasn't just me bloviating the whole time. Although I know I did bloviate a little bit. Uh, I just want to quickly throw out to those that are wondering what they can do 
and how you can help what's going on in Afghanistan, saveourallies.org. Again, saveourallies.org. Great organization to give some money to. Operationrecovery.org. That's another great uh, organization to support. Um, Nooneleftbehind.org. Another one. Uh, so again, those are three I can I can easily uh, uh, recommend. I'm actually looking at my phone right now for one more. Um, there is a great legal, uh, I guess it's a firm, um, but it's the uh, Pars Equality Center, parsequalitycenter.org, P-A-R-S equalitycenter.org. And they are also taking donations. These are lawyers that are helping the refugees um, get processed here and making sure that people get their SIVs, their P1s, their P2s, their humanitarian paroles, whatever it is that they need um, to make sure that they get the asylum that they need, the protection they need, and that America fulfills its obligation to the people that helped us. So parsequality.org, saveourallies.org, operationrecovery.org, nooneleftbehind.org. That's four places for you to think about uh, donating some money. And those links will all be in the show notes as well. But um, please give them a, a, a look and at least read about them. Go to their sites and read about them. Even if you don't give them money, learn about what's going on there. And um, I, I do think this the importance of what's going on over there can't be um, understated. So check them out. Okay. To everybody, uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do. You probably already have because you're listening to us. And I think most services automatically subscribe you. But if you're on iTunes, uh, questions, comments, side remarks are always welcome. If you don't mind attaching them to a five-star review, though, it would be deeply appreciated. The show notes, which will mostly be the links I just mentioned, uh, might be a couple of other ones. They will all be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Or they will be at the accompanying article that I write for this episode. That'll be at Havoc Journal. Or it'll be wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can just scroll down and you will see the show notes. You'll also see alibis. If there's anything I remember misstating or needed more context or, uh, you know, anything I just feel like covering my ass by by mentioning, I will mention it there. I can't remember off the top of my head if there even will be any of that. But if there is... That's where it'll be. Same place, weeklyhavoc.podbean.com, the article at Havoc Journal, or just scroll down uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast and you'll see it. As always, thanks to my producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.